Would you turn with me in your Bible uh, to 2 Corinthians chapter 3? We're going to start with some context about this, so just put your finger there. Um, This is Paul's second recorded letter to the Corinthians. There was most likely more, uh, but these are the only ones that we consider inspired and, and are included in the canon of the New Testament. And Paul uses this letter to clarify and defend some things about his own ministry to the Corinthians. You see, these false apostles had weaseled their way into the church, and they were uh, trying to discredit Paul and his message. They considered themselves superior to Paul, they literally super apostles, and they were telling the Corinthians that their gospel, a synergistic blending with the Jewish law, was superior to the one that Paul had given to them. And so Paul spends much of this letter laboring to reconcile a church that he planted back to himself, but not for selfish gain like the false apostles were, but it was so that they wouldn't stray from the true gospel. The gospel that Paul tells us in this passage is of greater glory than anything that came before. And this undermining of Paul still happens today. There are academics and seminaries and denominations and preachers and thought leaders who still seek to discredit the message of Paul. They say that he was a misogynist or a radical moralist who was trying to build a cult around the bloody death of a rabbi from Nazareth. But he certainly wasn't concerned with the real life of Jesus or the real message of Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves, why are both these ancient and modern forces so intent on undermining Paul? Why is almost an entire book of the New Testament devoted to defending the authority of Paul? And it boils down to this. They do not like the gospel that Paul presents. It offends them in one of a thousand ways. So if they can delegitimize him or his message they no longer have to recognize its demand or authority. Take Paul down and almost two-thirds of the New Testament crumbles. The strategy of the enemy then and now is to attack God's message, denigrate, diminish the glory of the true gospel, then replace it with a less glorious counterfeit. It was the strategy in the garden. Twist and diminish God's revealed words. Make them seem ugly and ignoble. Make the God who spoke these words seem petty or selfish or inglorious. And then present this other option that seems beneficial and lovely. But we see the path of destruction and despair that it leads to. We see the glory of God in the earth diminished because his image in humanity is marred by sin and corruption. So Paul's not fighting for his reputation or position He's not just fighting for the soul and dignity of the Corinthians. He is fighting for the honor and the glory of God. And that's good because the glory of God correctly defines us. It correctly defines us as individuals. It correctly defines us as the church. The most important thing about you, the most important thing about us as humans is that we are made in the image of the glorious God. Our primary purpose, the, the, the why for our being here, individually and corporately, is to reflect the glory of God throughout creation. 
Psalm 8 answers the question of what is man this way. He says in, in verses 5 through 6, you made man a little less than God and you crowned him with glory and honor and then you sent him out into the world to be the ruler over the works of your hands. Our identity is derivative of the glory of God. So read with me from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death, chiseled in, in letters on stone, <clears throat> came with glory, and we're going to jump to verse 8 here really quick, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness overflows with even more glory. In fact, what had been glorious is not glorious now by comparison because of the glory that surpasses it. What is Paul referencing here with what he calls the ministry of death chiseled in letters on stone? He's the law. Part of the reason that the law was given is so that God's people, by the way that they ordered their lives and society according to it, would be a reflection of God's glory to the nations. Obedience to the law would ensure that God's glory and his presence remained with them. It's God saying, you are my people, and these are what the defining characteristics of my people are. Think about this. The law was given from the glory of God on Mount Sinai to the only creatures on the face of the planet uniquely made to represent that glory, to help them fulfill their intended design of filling the earth with God's glory. Jesus affirms this view in his response to the Pharisees. And they asked him the question, what is the greatest commandment? And the scriptures reveal that it is the very nature of God to love the other members of the Godhead and to love those creatures that are made in his image. And so Jesus sums up the whole law this way. Those who are made in the image of the glorious God are to love God and love those who are made in his image. You are to be a reflection those who, who are, are of God are to do what God does, to, be, to represent, to represent the glory of God to the earth. <clears throat> now, Paul is not trying to badmouth the law here by calling it the ministry of death. Paul's view in his letter to the Romans is clear. The law is good. The Old Testament poets and prophets and kings all affirmed the sublime goodness of the law. It's so good that God himself carved it into the stones of the mountain upon which his presence was residing. It is, a, it is an expression of his glory. It's so good, in fact, that it ends up serving to condemn us because we fall so short of its glory. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul interchanges the standard of the law with the glory of God in that verse. God's glory, his righteousness revealed in the law, brings our fallen state into stark relief. He's, it's, it's not only correctly defined for us what we should be, it has revealed what we actually are. Rebels, transgressors, haters of God, and haters of those made in his image. 
Even those who strive to keep the law don't keep it because they make it about their own glory, their own righteousness. And what that deserves according to the law is death. So this is why Paul calls it the ministry of death. He is contrasting the lesser glory of faith in the law, which is what these false apostles are trying to convince the Corinthians of, with the greater glory of salvation by grace through faith in the law keeper, in Jesus. How many of you like camping? Yeah, we're in Idaho, great. Isn't one of the most wonderful things about camping when the fire dies down, everybody's headlamps are off, the lights of the city are all blocked out by the mountains, and you get to look up at the glory of the stars in the heavens. That is truly a glorious picture. But where are the stars this morning? Did they get packed up into a box and put on a shelf so that you can't see them anymore? No, the burning glory of the morning sun has made the glory of the stars meaningless. Now imagine what it would be like to try to live your life solely by starlight. Solely at night. It would be lonely and dreary and depressing and foolish. And those of you who work night shift know that that's true. But these are what the false apostles are trying to get the Corinthians to do. There is now a fuller revelation of God's glory in the person of Christ than in the law. There's a fuller revelation of who we are in the person of Christ than in the law. Now listen, the ministry of the stars isn't bad. It's just inferior to the ministry of the sun. The law is not bad. It is just inferior to Christ. And as much as the glory of God correctly defines us, the glory of God rightly terrifies us. Let's read verse 7 again with me. It says, The ministry of death, chiseled in letters on stone, stones, came with glory, so that the Israelites were not able to look directly at Moses' face because of the glory from his face, even though it was a fading glory. And Paul is linking us back now to the story in Exodus where the Israelites are encamped around Mount Sinai and the presence of God descends in glory upon the mountain. And Moses goes up into this glorious presence and he is given the law. But while this is happening, the Israelites are down at the foot of the mountain turning to idolatry turning to a lesser God, turning to a lesser glory, and it is disastrous for them. But Moses, while he's in the presence of God, intercedes for them first that God would not destroy them utterly for their faithlessness, and second, that he would not remove his glorious presence. He would not take his presence away from them. And amazingly, it says that God relents And he promises to not destroy them and to not take his presence away from them. And in the midst of this interchange, Moses asks to see the glory of God. And what is God's response to him? He says, no man may see my glory. No man may see my face and live. Now, God doesn't really have a a physical face. He doesn't have eyeballs and, and eyebrows and all that stuff. He's using, he's accommodating us with this language. What he is saying is that no man no sinful human 
can stand in the unmediated glory of his presence, the unadulterated holiness of God, and not be destroyed by it. Isaiah had a taste of this when he had a spiritual vision of the Lord. And the first words out of his mouth are, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am destroyed. So instead of dropping Moses right into the furnace of his glory and causing him to pass out of existence, because God wants to reveal his glory, he takes him and he hides him in the cleft of the rock. And he covers him over and he causes his glory to pass by. And then he removes the covering and he gets to see the afterglow of God's glory. That afterglow is so intense that Moses' face begins to radiate. Exodus 34 reveals that just this residual glory radiating off the face of Moses struck fear into the hearts of the Israelites. Rather than comforting them knowing that God's presence hadn't been removed, it struck fear into their heart. So much so that Moses has to veil his face so that they don't have to look at it, so that they can shrink away. There's a perfect, I have a perfect example of this today for us. Kristen and I met at a church that was in the, the midst of the closest thing to revival I've, I think I've ever experienced. The word of God was being preached in more powerfully than I had ever heard before. People were being saved and brought into community. They were growing radically in holiness. Prayer meetings were just, all the prayer meetings in the church were full to bursting. It had all of the appearances of Acts 2. And each time, but this was the most magnificent thing, each time that we would gather together for worship, something special would happen. The glory of God became almost tangible in the room. It wasn't some weird manifestation. It was undeniable to the senses and to the mind and to the spirit that the Lord was present. It was overwhelmingly terrible and wonderful at the same time. You couldn't wait for service to start and you couldn't wait for service to end because the Lord was there. But I had a friend who would come with me and this friend was in full rebellion to the Lord. And I don't know why they would ask to come because as soon as the weight of God's glory would fall on the room, they would become visibly agitated And then they would flee the sanctuary like they were being driven out with a whip. They would recoil from the glory of God. And this is human tendency. In our rebellion, we shrink away from God rather than press into him for help. Adam and Eve did it in the garden by by covering themselves with leaves and hiding. The people of Israel did it by veiling uh, Moses' face so they didn't have to, to see the glory of God. And at the end of the age, at the glorious appearing of Christ, those who are not in Jesus, Revelation 6 says that even the mightiest of them, the best of them, will cry out to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the, one, the face of the one who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Because our sinful state causes us to shrink back, to hide from the glory of God because we know, we know in the deep places of our heart, in the dark hours of the night, that our sin is worthy of condemnation, is worthy of death. 
And when we are confronted with the glory of the Holy One, it reminds us of that. So we pull away. When in reality, we should press in. Because as much as the glory of God rightly terrifies us, the glory of God fundamentally transforms us. Turn to verse 11 with me. We're going to read down through verse 18. It says, For if what was fading away was glorious, what endures will be even more glorious. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness. We're not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the Israelites could not stare at the end of what was fading away. Their minds were closed. For to this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains. It is not lifted because it is set aside only in Christ. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. And this is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Our conversion, our ongoing repentance happens when we see Christ in all his glory, when the spiritual veil is taken away. Any reason to hide, any reason to veil ourselves from the presence of the Lord is done away with in Christ. Christ fulfilled every obligation of what Paul calls the ministry of death and condemnation by taking upon himself the sin of humanity, and bearing the due penalty for that sin on the cross. In his life and resurrection, he has inaugurated this new ministry of righteousness revealed apart from the law. His righteousness imputed to us. His life credited to our account. His spirit freeing us from the sin and the terror that once captivated our entire existence. And he does this so that we might boldly approach the throne of grace in time of need and not shrink back and not cry out like Isaiah, I am destroyed. Rather, as we draw closer and gaze deeper and at this glorious radiance, we will cry out, I am remade. I am transformed. Now, don't confuse boldness to approach with flippancy or frivolity. We are still called to fear and to trembling God's glory is still a weight that should bow us low before him. But in Christ, that fear and trembling is born of reverence, of honor, of gratitude, of awe at the power and majesty of God. We were made and remade by God's glory to live in the light of God's glory, to be continually transformed by God's glory. And we are like mirrors in our, in our creation, we are like mirrors. Whatever we spend time, when we spend time beholding the glory of God, the image of God that we broadcast out to creation will be better, clearer, brighter, more lovely. And so, of course, Paul is fighting back against the apostles. They were, these false apostles, they were, they're calling people to behold a lesser glory, to broadcast a lesser glory, a glory that is fading away. And the people of Corinth would have been transformed by that lesser glory, whether they liked it or not. We need to be careful 
Because we will be transformed by whatever lesser glories we spend our time beholding. So as a church, as individuals, how do we behold the glory of God? There's a bunch of different ways, but I'm going to give you three of them. And the first is, we behold the glory of God in the proclamation of the gospel. How many times a day do we need to preach the good news of the finished work of Christ on the cross to ourselves? And so we do this with every bumbling misstep. Confess your sin. Turn your eyes away from your failing and on to Jesus. Praise him for the complete forgiveness achieved in what he has done. Remind yourself how he has saved you. And then go and preach the good news of the finished work of Christ to other people. Do you want to see the glory of God in the earth? Preach the gospel and watch God raise a sinful heap of a man to new life. Watch him give him a new hope, a new calling, new robes of righteousness. Make them a new creation and you will see the glory of God manifested before you. The second way that we do it is through the power of corporate worship. And I know you guys are all like, oh great, the worship pastor is talking about worship again. <laughs> but listen, when God's people, when these stones that are combined to create his temple come together with a singular focus on and a singular passion for the adoration and praise of Christ, the glory and the presence of the living God comes and fills that temple. And I'm not talking about ethereal manifestations of glory clouds, and I'm not talking about that. I am talking about the experience in your soul where you cannot avoid the reality that God is present. That wonderful place where it is almost too fearful and awesome to bear, but you wouldn't leave it for anything. Even if it did cause you to just pass out of existence, it would be okay because the Lord's presence is there. Now, of course, he isn't going to appear in the fullness of his glory. We still inhabit these bodies of death. Paul says that we're, we're looking at this glory as through a mirror. <clears throat> but like with Moses, he will reveal what we can handle. And not just in an intellectual or theological way, but in an experiential way. This is why on Sunday morning, Sunday morning gathering isn't just a, another optional activity for Sunday or some dreary religious obligation. This is why we try and protect the worship space on Sunday morning from distraction. This is why we encourage you to come and be on time and have your heart prepared to dive into worship. This is why we devote half of our time on Sunday to corporate praise. We're not doing it because we want to make a big deal out of the, out of the worship band we're doing it because we believe that God reveals his glory to those who long for him. We believe that, that he reveals his glory to those who have a passion to exalt him. We believe that he inhabits the praises of his people, that he sits enthroned on the praises of his people. And one moment, one moment in the presence of the living God can transform everything. Rebels can become sons. Hearts can be healed. Sin can be cast off. Addiction can be broken. Hope can be found. And the final way that we behold the glory of God as a church, as individuals, is in the person of Jesus Christ. 
All throughout the New Testament, it is clear, Jesus is the better revelation of the glory of God. So look to him. Study him. Listen to him. Cry out to him. Obey him. Follow him. Exalt him. My Christian walk was transformed when someone spent two years just teaching me about who Jesus was. And this is what we're going to do as a church. I'm so excited for the next season. Next week, Pastor Patrick is going to, is going to lay out a vision for you of discipleship and community here at this church. And then the week after that, we're going to start a series called The Glory of the One and Only. And it is a study through the book of John with the, intent, with the intentional purpose of looking, gazing at, and being transformed by the glory of Jesus. So we're going to spend all the way, I think, to Easter looking at how Jesus has glorified himself, how, how God has, how the Father has glorified Jesus through, through his life on earth. And I'm, I'm just thrilled to death about that. I cannot wait for it. Um, so as the worship team comes back up, I want to encourage you that our time on Sunday morning, our time on Sunday morning isn't just a thing that we do. It's not a TED Talk that has some pre-show entertainment. Right? This is the temple of the living God. The stones that, that comprise that temple coming and crying out to be filled with the presence of the living God. So would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we, we want to confess that you are the thing of greatest glory that we can behold. We want to confess that we accept so much less than your glory, that we spend our time and our energy and our talent and our treasure focusing on so much less than the glory of God. Lord, we want to behold your glory. As your church, as your people, we want to be transformed by that glory, from glory to glory. We want to be transformed into the image of your Son. But Lord, we know that without the, the mediating presence of Christ, that without the veil being removed in Christ, that we can't behold this. And so for those who, who have not seen the glory of Jesus, who have not cried out to him for salvation this morning, I pray that you would lift the veil, that they would see you as glorious that they would, would bow before that glory in awe and in reverence and in gratitude for the fact that you have saved them. Or that they would call out to you for salvation, not, not based on their own works or their own goodness, but based on the fact that you kept and completed the law and you have credited a righteousness to us that, that only you could do. Lord, we love you and we praise you in your name. Amen.